Welcome to Civics and Coffee. My name is Alicia and I am a self-professed history nerd. Each week, I'm going to chat about a topic on U.S. history and give you both the highlights and occasionally break down some of the complexities in history and share stories you may not remember learning in high school, all in the time it takes to enjoy a cup of coffee. Welcome back, everybody. Last week, I left you with the story of the creation of the Culper spy ring. This week, I'm going to go into the details of one of the biggest gets of counterintelligence, the foiling of the infamous traitor, Benedict Arnold. You may think you know the story of Mr. Arnold, but this week, I hope to give you some insight into the man who would go down as the worst defector in military history. So grab your cup of coffee, peeps. Let's do it. Before I get into how Arnold was caught in the act, let's talk a little bit about who he was and how he came into military service. Benedict Arnold was born on January 14, 1741. Hey, that's my bestie's birthday. Hey, Kelly. Arnold was named after his grandfather, an early governor of the Rhode Island colony, and while he was one of six children, only he and his sister Hannah lived to adulthood, with his other siblings succumbing to yellow fever. Benedict Arnold joined the colonial militia in 1757 at the age of 16 during the French and Indian War. However, he would leave after just one year and go into business as a pharmacist and a bookseller. Frustrated with the impact of the various taxes passed by Parliament, Arnold would join the Sons of Liberty and would resort to smuggling to avoid paying tax assessments. Arnold seemed very dedicated to the American cause, writing passionately about the Boston Massacre in 1770. After war broke out, Benedict joined the Connecticut militia in March of 1775 as a captain and was promoted to colonel just two months later. Arnold was kind of a double-edged sword, extremely intelligent military strategy, but notoriously ill-tempered and domineering. And it appears as though he walked around with a chip on his shoulder, never quite feeling like he was getting the respect and accolades he felt he deserved. He was frustrated at his rate of promotion and looked to outside business opportunities to supplement his lifestyle. In June of 1778, Arnold was appointed as the commander of Philadelphia, where he used his position to increase his commercial success. It was in Philadelphia Arnold met loyalist Peggy Shippen, a young, beautiful woman who was smitten with the commander nearly 20 years her senior. It would be Arnold's relationship and marriage to Peggy that would place the final nail in the proverbial coffin and would facilitate his decision to betray his colonial loyalties in the search of something more. You see, the Americans were not the only ones to employ nefarious methods in order to gain an upper hand. The British had their own master of spies, Major John Andre, who was appointed as chief intelligence officer in the spring of 1779 by General Henry Clinton. Andre was known to Arnold's wife, Peggy. She had spent time with him in Philadelphia and had a cordial relationship as a member of a highly respected loyalist family. There's even some evidence to suggest that maybe there was some courting between Andre and Peggy. So when Arnold reached out to General Clinton in May of 1779 to offer his service to the crown, it was Andre who would be tasked with testing the commander's seriousness. But What prompted Arnold to make the leap from leading Patriot troops and working his way up the military chain of command to selling out his countrymen and attempting to overturn a key military fort? Well, it's complicated. Some of it comes from Arnold's ego and sense of pride. 
As I mentioned, he felt his military career was not going in the direction he wanted. He seemed ever focused on the slights to his career as junior officers were promoted in a quicker fashion than himself. Another factor is Arnold's associations in Philadelphia. He married a pronounced Tory in Peggy Shippen, and perhaps hearing their side infused Arnold with serious doubts. Or maybe he looked around and, seeing the might and the power of the British Army and the missteps of the Patriots, thought his lot in life would be better if he threw his support behind the crown. Unfortunately, these are all just hypotheses. We will never know why he decided to break his loyalty, but what we do know is the culprit ring and the intelligence they gathered played a key role in his discovery. So, after making contact with Andre, Benedict put his plan into motion. In 1780, Arnold asked to be put in charge of the fort at West Point. His assignment in Philadelphia would provide no real value for the British. After all, New York was where all the action was. West Point is located 55 miles north of Manhattan and was used to direct access to the Hudson River. Controlling the Hudson would allow the limiting of troop movement and supplies. When Arnold originally asked for the post, Washington hesitated, but eventually acquiesced. Arnold took over West Point on August 3, 1780. Arnold promised the British he would turn over the logistically important fort as soon as he assumed control. For the right price, of course. His fee? 20,000 pounds. Arnold also worked on trying to uncover the identities of the members of the spy ring so he could feed the information to the British, asking Washington to provide their information in an effort to defend West Point. Luckily, Washington did not divulge any information. Once he assumed command, Arnold started making arrangements to meet with John Andre. Creating a cover identity, John Anderson, Andre would play a merchant to Benedict's consumer, and they made plans to meet near Dobbs Ferry on September 11th. Due to taking on British fire from his boat, Arnold was not able to meet with Andre and had to reschedule the meeting for later in the month. Andre boarded the British vessel, the Vulture, and headed north one more time to meet his defector. Arnold and Andre were finally able to meet, Arnold having called for Andre in the middle of the night. Unable to return to the vulture before daybreak, Andre spent the day on shore under the guise of his cover identity. When Andre went to return to the vulture, he was distraught to watch it as it left harbor and was sailing south, forcing Andre to make his return through enemy territory on land. Arnold did his best to assist a safe passage for Andre, writing him a pass to not be harmed or detained. As Andre was nearing the line for British territory, three colonial soldiers, John Paulding, Isaac Van Wart, and David Williams, stopped his horse and forced him to dismount and answer some questions. A cool cucumber, Andre attempted to present his pass written by Arnold. However, the soldiers seemed unimpressed and started searching him for correspondence or proof of wrongdoing. At one point during the search, Andre was forced to remove his boots, and that is when the soldiers caught sight of letters stuffed into his socks. Andre was immediately detained and delivered to Colonel Jameson at the American outpost in North Castle. Jameson felt a little stuck. On one hand, Andre had some very damaging papers, including maps of West Point. But on the other hand, he held a pass written by Benedict Arnold himself. That alone should have guaranteed the man's safe passage without delay from the American army. Upon his presentation to Jameson, Andre asked to be escorted back to Arnold, who would clear the whole mess up. Knowing just how volatile Arnold was, Jameson agreed, but also forwarded the papers post-haste for Washington's review. 
Benjamin Talmadge, one of the leading members of the Culper Spy Ring, had just returned to North Castle after a scouting mission. He had heard about the capture of a prisoner by the name of John Anderson and felt the name was familiar, but couldn't exactly place the recognition. As he was reviewing his correspondence, he came across a note written by Arnold stating a John Anderson may be traveling through and that he should be granted safe passage. This is when it clicked for Talmadge. The ring had been reporting odd activities and rumors, and Arnold had been acting quite out of character. He rushed to see the prisoner, but Andre was already being escorted back to West Point. Talmadge rushed to Colonel Jameson and demanded he bring the prisoner back. Jameson eventually agreed, however, not before writing a letter to Arnold warning him about a nefarious plot to ruin his reputation and that a gentleman by the name of John Anderson had been captured with a pass supposedly written by Arnold. It all came to a head as Washington made the journey to West Point for fort inspection and a check-in with Arnold. Washington's aide, Alexander Hamilton, came in ahead of the general to make arrangements for the visit. Almost immediately after Hamilton arrived, a courier presented Arnold with Jameson's letter. After reading the damaging warning, Arnold made an excuse to Hamilton about needing to attend to an urgent matter across the river and promised he would be right back. He would scurry to a boat along the river's edge and board the HMS Vulture and be safely within British territory before Washington arrived at West Point. It was at West Point where Washington would learn of Arnold's deceit as the papers captured with John Andre were delivered and the details of the fort surrender exposed. While in custody, Andre asked for writing utensils and wrote a long confession addressed to Washington, admitting his role as a spy. There was some discussion of prisoner swaps, but the British refused to release Arnold, and so John Andre would be tried and hanged on October 2nd. The Culper Ring successfully exposed a plot that could have meant the end of the revolution for the Americans. They would also manage to gain access to a copy of British Navy codes that was delivered to the French, allowing them to conquer the British at the Siege of Yorktown. So, while the Culper Ring never really helped Washington regain the control of New York he so desperately wanted, they did prove valuable in their ability to successfully gather intelligence and report activity to aid the general in his battle plans. The Culper Ring was so successful that their story is still shared with CIA officers today. Washington's spy ring was considered so successful, even a British intelligence officer is quoted as saying, Washington didn't outfight the British, he simply outspied them. And so, what became of the various members of the spy ring? Well, the only female of the ring, Agent 355, is believed to have been captured and put into a prison ship where she died. The longshoreman responsible for transmitting messages, Caleb Brewster, hung up his life of adventure and settled down with a wife and children, eventually dying in 1827. Austin Rowe, bestowed the rank of captain, would spend his remaining years retelling the tales of his time as a spy for the Revolution. He died at the age of 81 in 1830. James Rivington, a man who I did not dedicate any time to in my episodes, but who did play a role in the activities of the ring as the owner of a local shop in Manhattan, fell onto hard times and had to serve jail time due to his inability to pay his debts. He died on July 4th, 1802. Robert Townsend, the quiet, reserved man known by his code name Samuel Culper Jr., never publicly admitted his part in the spy ring and never requested a military pension. He led a lonely life, apparently never getting over the loss of Agent 355. He passed away in 1838 at the age of 84. Abraham Woodhull would live out his life on Long Island and participate in local government. 
He also kept mum about his life as a spy and died on January 23, 1826. Benjamin Talmadge, the chief organizer of the spy ring, would spend life in politics, eventually serving in the U.S. House of Representatives. He would pass away at 81 years old. And lastly, General George Washington. His story is a little more well-known. Hoping to retire from civil service, Washington would be pulled back to serve as the first president of the United States. But we'll talk more about him in a future episode. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Civics and Coffee. If you want to hear more small snippets from American history, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining me, and I look forward to our next cup of coffee together. Thank you.